0: Would you please pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to listen to your word as it's being read. And the opportunity that that gives us to be able to reflect on it together. Thank you for these stories that John provides for us. These scenes where your followers were having conversations with the resurrected Jesus uh, and so help us to learn now from these conversations uh, about what it means uh, that Jesus rose again from the dead, that he is the risen and ascended Savior. Uh, we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, so it's the evening of the Resurrection Sunday, so it's, it's, we haven't even gone a, a, but a few hours, uh, and the disciples are locked up in a room somewhere uh, for fear of their own lives. Uh, and this makes sense if you stop and think about it. I mean, they've, they've had a kind of a crazy day. All of a sudden, Peter and John ran and the tomb was empty. And we're told that John is beginning to believe that he, he it's the, all the dots have not been connected for him yet, but he believes. Uh, we don't know what Peter thinks, but we know that when they initially hear the message from Mary... Uh, And from the other women that their initial response was uh, not that, you know, they weren't, they weren't, they were, they were confused. They weren't sure what was going on. Uh, And so they are hiding because they're afraid of the religious leaders. And again, that makes sense. Uh, Remember, it's the religious leaders who uh, hatched this plan to kill Jesus. They're responsible for everything that happened. It's the religious leaders that convinced the Romans to seal up the tomb. It was the religious leaders who worked Uh, in conjunction with Judas uh, to set up the betrayal of Jesus. So it makes sense that they're scared and confused and that they're filled with fear and doubts. Uh, And so all of a sudden now, Jesus uh, assures them with his presence. Jesus shows up uh, in the middle of the room. Uh, And so here's the the, the first thing that we see in this passage is that all of a sudden Jesus has this physical body, right? Mary was able to hug him. Thomas is going to touch him. Uh, they're, he's able to, they're able to see the scars on his hands and on his side, but it's not a physical body because he's able to walk through walls or walk through locked doors, right? There's this, there's this really mysterious thing that's happening. And, it's, and it's, uh, I think it's interesting and, and really beautiful for us to stop and think on the fact that Jesus still to this day has the wounds of the cross on his body. Uh, so that as you and I go through life and we experience the scars of life, whether they be physical, emotional, or spiritual, as we go through life and we ourselves are wounded, that our Savior is a wounded Savior. Uh, that in the book of Revelation, when we have these images of a lamb on the throne, it's a lamb who still bears the marks of the crucifixion. That That is the reality of Jesus for the rest of eternity. Uh, that when we see him face to face, we will see the wounds on his hands and on his side, maybe the scars on his head uh, as well. Uh, the disciples, we're told, are all of a sudden filled with joy. It says in verse 20, it says, The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, this makes sense because Jesus told them back in John 16. He said to them, uh, I tell you, you're going to weep and mourn while the world rejoices. That's what happened. Right, they're, they're in deep sadness and the religious leaders are like, yes, we got rid of that guy. Uh, but he says, you grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And that's exactly what's happening uh, in the passage. That their grief is turned to joy because all of a sudden Jesus is standing there In front of them. And what does he say? He not only only comforts them with his presence, but then he assures them with his peace. He says to them, Peace be with you. Now that's important, right? Because what had happened? uh, What had happened in the garden, right? They all bolted out of the of the twelve disciples, right? Uh, One betrays them. Uh, Let me see, do the math real quick. One betrays them, eight disappear. Uh, And two, did I do my math right? No, nine disappear and two are there when he's being betrayed, but one of them denies him. Uh, So that's not a very good record, right? If you think about like the statistically, like, hey, like we were with Jesus to the very end. Like this is not a good, they didn't, it's not a good showing. Um, And yet Jesus walks in and he says to them, peace be with you. So He immediately sets the stage for everything that's about to happen. Like, hey, it's okay. It's going to be all right. I'm not angry. Uh, He doesn't scold them, he doesn't reprimand them. But then what he does do is that he challenges them with a mission and empowers them with a spirit. What does Jesus say? As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Now stop and think about that. Like, what do we know? What did what did Jesus say? about the way the Father had sent him, right? So we believe that Jesus is the, the you know, eternally begotten of the Father. He is God of God, right? But he, he, he was born as a man, and his mission, the reason he came as a man to, uh, to, to live in our world, was because the Father, in the Father's great plan of salvation, had something specific that he wanted Jesus to do. Uh, And Jesus gives us hints of this in the Gospel of John. Jesus tells us that he was sent in order to do the Father's will. Uh, Jesus was sent in order to speak the Father's words. Uh, Jesus was sent in order to do the works that the Father had prepared for him to do. Uh, And so, uh, you realize that Jesus is now sending the disciples in the same way that the Father had sent him. And so... Uh, It stands to reason, doesn't it, right, that the disciples now are the ones who, these men and women that are in that room are the ones who are going to do the Father's will and speak the Father's words and do the works that the Father had prepared for them to do. But it doesn't stop with them. Right? Uh, it, no matter what, you know, if you, if you want to dig in uh, to these passages, you know, you buy some commentaries, and, uh, you know, depending on the commentaries you read, the, you know, people are going to disagree on all kinds of things. But, but everybody agrees, everybody agrees, that the clear implication of this passage is that it, that doesn't stop with the disciples right? That the idea was that the disciples are given the words, the will, and the works of the Father to do, but then that then uh, proceeds so that you and I are now the ones who are sent by the Father and the Son to do uh, the works of the Father has prepared for us to do, uh, to follow out the will of the Father in our lives, and to speak the words that the Father has given us to do. But, um, he he doesn't ask us to do it on our own strength, right? Just as Jesus was empowered by the Spirit uh, in, in, in John or not in John in Luke uh, um, four, uh, you know, the Spirit comes on Jesus as he goes into the wilderness. Jesus now breathes the Spirit on them, uh, and and if you might like, oh, that's really interesting. How does that relate to Pentecost in Acts chapter four? I have no clue. And commentators have no clue. They have all kinds of theories, but at the end of the day, one of the commentators is, we just simply don't know how what happens in John 20 relates to what happens in Acts 4. We just don't know. Uh, but Jesus breathes the Spirit on them uh, and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Because I think what he's communicating is, there's like: I, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you, but you can't go by yourself. Right? You need my Spirit to be with you. You need my spirit to go with you in order to do the work that uh, he's called you to do. So think about that really practically. You know, a little bit ago, Chad made an announcement about good neighbor teams, right? Uh, And so you can totally, we could totally kind of just show up on our own strength, in our own kind of, our own jam, right? Uh, To to be a good neighbor to someone who's a refugee. Um, And and the reality is that if we do that, like, there's a lot of good that can happen, right? Uh, Let's not. Let's not just, you know, let's not be ignorant about the fact that you don't have to love Jesus in order to serve other people. You can serve other people and not love Jesus. But when you do it in the spirit of the Holy Spirit empowered, uh, we all of a sudden begin to realize like the needs of an individual go far beyond just the material needs, right? There are spiritual and emotional needs. And as God's people, we, we have the ability through the work of Holy Spirit to show up in ways that we may not otherwise be able to show up. That actually, maybe some of you know, you hear a Good Neighbor Team and you're like, thanks, but no thanks. Um, but maybe perhaps the Holy Spirit is actually the reason why you go into places, we go into places that otherwise we may not uh, normally go because Jesus moves in us through his Spirit uh, to speak his words, do his will, and do the works that he has prepared for us to do. Uh, so, so Jesus is sending them. He's sending them with, uh, he's sending them, saying, "He says the Father sent me, I'm sending you. He's not sending them alone. Uh, he says, he breathes the Spirit on them, but then he tells them what it is that they're supposed to talk about. Uh he says that in verse 23 if you forgive anyone's sin, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. So forgiveness uh is central to what it is that Christians are supposed to be about. Now think about like that's really profound, right? Uh think of think of the way that if we if forgiveness was a hallmark of the way that the church did life, uh, think of how different right? The last several years would have been, right? If all of a sudden I'm in a a small group with somebody and uh, somebody says something that, you know, like, ah, I can't believe you think that. I can't believe you hold that political position, right? Um, If the the natural bent of our heart was like, man, I've been forgiven. And so I'm going to show grace and kindness to the people around me. uh, Man, so many things would have looked very differently, wouldn't have they? Uh, If forgiveness is the thing that Jesus came to do. So think about this, right? That the Father sent Jesus into the world in order to make forgiveness possible, right? That the words that Jesus spoke were words that were ultimately pointing to the forgiveness that he would offer on the cross. That the works that Jesus did were ultimately pointing to the reality of new life that we receive through the forgiveness that Jesus provides for us. Imagine then that what Jesus is sending you and me out, that he is sending us out with that same message of forgiveness, right? That we have been forgiven. So something that we have experienced, right? Something that has shaped us, we've received it. We live that out in community with one another, and then we communicate it to other people. And this is, I think, what Jesus is uh, telling the disciples, that this is, some have said, in the same way, you know, Matthew 28, if you know the gospel accounts, Matthew 28 is that passage that's generally referred to as the Great Commission, this this moment where Jesus is sending out the disciples. Well, folks have argued that John 20, these verses here that we're looking at, are John's version of Pentecost and the Great Commission, that he's bringing these two things together really clearly to say, hey, you don't get sent out without Jesus going with you through his spirit. And when you get sent out, when the church gets sent out, we get sent out in order to communicate the forgiveness that uh, he has for us. And so, but we receive that first by believing that Jesus died and rose again, right? That's, that's what's having to happen here, right? The disciples have to believe, they have to recognize, they have to see for themselves that Jesus died and rose again. And, and they're not doing great. Let's just be honest, they're not doing great with this. Uh, and we see that really clearly in the next part of the story. Uh, for whatever reason, we don't know why, Thomas wasn't there that night. Uh, and so what happens is that Thomas gets wind of what happens. Uh, and this is Thomas's response. Thomas says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were, uh, put, or, or I'm sorry, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe now. Uh, something I hadn't seen before. It's really fascinating how John is telling the story, okay? So follow the, follow the story. You got these two scenes, and they're almost identical in the way that they're, they're told to us. So Mary sees Jesus. She communicates. She tells. She's the first eyewitness of the resurrection. She goes to the disciples. The disciples don't believe. And the reason we know the disciples don't believe is because they're what? They're locked up in a room and scared right? Um, And hold on to that thought. So we know that they don't believe at first. John is the only one that we're told believes. Thomas, so then, and then Jesus shows up into their midst and what does Jesus do? He says, see my hands, see my side. See that? Jesus like offers that up to them. Thomas now has not only Mary and the women's eyewitness accounts, but he's got the eyewitness accounts of all of the other disciples, right? And he doesn't believe. How do we know he doesn't believe? He tells us. I will not believe until I see. Uh, and then Jesus shows up on a Sunday. Jesus shows up. Uh, and what does he do? He says, Thomas, here you go. Uh, so the exact same thing happens twice. It's really, really, really fascinating, right? And so, and so here's the reality, right? What do we, if you grew up in the church, what, what, what nickname does Thomas have? You know, the guy gets a bum rap, right? They were all doubting, right? It's the doubting disciples, It's not doubting Thomas. It's doubting, it's not doubting John, but it's doubting Peter. It's doubting Andrew. It's doubting James. They all didn't get it. And and here's the thing, right? It's a week later. And what are the disciples doing? They're still in a locked room, y'all. How do we know that? Because it says Jesus went through the locked door. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a book a couple years ago on... Timothy Keller's is a pastor in New York City. Probably most of you know that. Um, wrote, he wrote a book a couple years ago on the resurrection. Such a good book. Uh, and he says, commenting on this particular story, he says that, uh, that when we see Thomas' doubting, it's really actually a, a, a pivotal moment for us to see ourselves in Thomas uh, and the disciples, right? That Thomas's doubt is not unique to Thomas. It's something that we all face. And that, that the, generally speaking, there are kind of three ways that we approach situations like this. For some of us, our worldview uh, doesn't allow us to believe that something like this is possible. Right? We believe in a materialistic world. There's no such thing as the supernatural. Uh, there's no such thing as God. And so there's no way, we, the, the, that heart says, there's no way this could happen. Others of us uh, might be a little bit more open to the supernatural run, but we're kind of skeptical or cynical by nature, right? Uh, and so uh, there's no way, the heart, that heart says, there's no way I believe unless I see it, right? Show, you know, show me the money, prove it to me. Uh, and then there are those of us whose doubts are born more out of a fragile heart that says, man, I can't bear for these things not to be true, and so we're afraid of the, of the disappointment. I think you could kind of make the case that maybe all three of these are true of Thomas. Uh, the reality was that no Jew back then believed in resurrection in the middle of history, right? They believed in resurrection at the end of time, but the idea of resurrection in the middle of history was completely bonkers to them. Uh, and I think it's very true for him to say, like, I can't bear the thought of this not of this being true. I can't, I can't bear the thought of believing this and being proven that, uh, that that it's not actually true, because these folks, these men and women, loved Jesus. It's a week later now, uh, and I think it's interesting, isn't it, to think that the disciples already were in the habit two days after the resurrection, or the day of the resurrection, they were already in the habit of meeting on Sundays. Uh, the following week, they were in the habit of meeting on Sundays. So you see, what we're doing here is not just something that, like, got concocted at some point in church history. From the day of resurrection, people who follow Jesus have gathered together on the first day of the week in order to remember the resurrection. Uh, You know, Kate mentioned this in her announcement. Like, we all order our schedules in different ways, right? Probably for most of us, work uh, is, or school is the thing that, like, dominates our schedule, right? Right? Uh, what I would submit to you is that as those who follow Jesus, worship is the thing that should dominate our schedule, that, that we should order our lives around the weekly gathering where God's people come together uh, and worship him, uh, that, that's, that that's how the church has always been because we believe in the resurrection, right? This is the moment where we stop and we say, hey, we are, we are people who believe in a risen and ascended king. Well, so um, Jesus shows up, right? So the disciples are there. They're closed in. Uh, We don't know what point in this process Thomas is like, "Ah, I don't know what I think about this. You all are crazy. But a week later, the next Sunday, uh, they're in a locked room again. And this time Thomas is there. And we read the same thing happens. Jesus walks in, right? Jesus walks in. and, And he doesn't say that there's any conversation with Thomas. But he knew what Thomas had said, right? Because what does he do? He walks up to Thomas and says, all right, Thomas, here you go. Here you go. Believe. Believe, right? I'm here. It's really me. Uh, It's physically him, right? That, That they were able to see him and recognize him for who he is. He says, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now, I don't think that, uh, you know, as I've read this, I, I'm not sure that Jesus is scolding him here. I actually think that Jesus is yet again being really patient because he recognizes how category, how category shifting what is happening is for these men and women that he spent so much of his time with. Uh, Uche Anazor is, uh, last year wrote a book called Overcoming Apathy. You may have heard of it. Christianity Today uh, said it was the book of the year. It's a a pretty good book. Uh, And he writes this about this passage. He says, Jesus bears with us amid our doubt. He is even willing to accommodate us. The gospel is the good news of a patient God who bears with those who doubt his presence, even when they are looking him squarely in the face. Another commentator, a guy by the name of Frederick Bruner, writes this. He says, Honest doubt is something the risen Jesus clearly honors. Uh, isn't that beautiful, right? That, 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 that our fears and our doubts do not disqualify us in the eyes of the risen and ascended Jesus. Right? That our fears and our doubts are places where he meets us. Now, a question you might be asking, because I think it's a totally legitimate question. Why doesn't Jesus show up for me the way that he did for Thomas? A couple of, no. I see a couple heads maybe nodding, right? And here's the reality, that, that Jesus needed to show up. It was actually imperative for Jesus to show up for Thomas in a way that's different than it is for us. Because Thomas is one of the 12 apostles. Right, And the criteria for being an apostle, the criteria for being the ones on whom the church is going to be founded was that they were witnesses of the resurrection. And so Thomas, it was necessary for Thomas to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. But notice what Jesus says to Thomas. He says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. He's saying, blessed are you us here today. Thomas had what we have. Thomas had what the disciples had. Eyewitness testimony. You and I, we have eyewitness testimony, right? So Mary is the first eyewitness in John's gospel. She is the eyewitness that then goes to the disciples and says, I've seen the Lord. Do they believe? Except for John, there's no, there's no indication that they believe, right? They're hiding and they're scared. The disciples then uh, are witnesses, right? The, the women uh, and the men that are there are witnesses, and they are the eyewitnesses for Thomas. Thomas doesn't believe. We know he doesn't believe because he tells us, I don't believe. Um, you and I have eyewitness testimony. That is what the gospel accounts are. Uh, there's a book... By the, name of, uh, by the name of Jesus and Eyewitnesses. It's, it's one of these like tome books, right? It's like a doorstop book. You're probably, none of you are going to read this book, um, but you should uh, if you really want to geek out on New Testament theology. Uh, the guy's name is Richard Bauckham. He's one of the preeminent uh, theologians of our day. Uh, and has written extensively on a number of things. And, and it's like a thousand page, maybe it's not a thousand page, that's like five, five six hundred pages book, right? Where he is painstakingly showing us how uh, the gospel accounts are all eyewitness testimony. Uh, that, it's, that it's written in the same kind of eyewitness testimony of that day. And so that every time in the gospel accounts that you have these little throwaway comments about people, that the reason those little throwaway comments about, oh, so-and-so, you know, this was at the house of so-and-so, right? is because that so-and-so is the one that provided that little nugget for the gospel authors to be able to tell their story. And so you and I have the eyewitness testimony... Of the people who saw the risen and ascended Jesus. You and I have the eyewitness testimony of the people who saw Jesus doing the words, speaking the words of the Father, doing the will of the Father, and doing the works that the Father had given him to do. Uh, And so you and I have, in the midst of our fear, in the midst of our doubt, we've been provided by the Father eyewitness accounts to assure us that these things are true. But that's not all that he's given us, right? Because, uh, remember, they were meeting on the first day of the week. The Lord has given us worship as a place in which we gather together to be reminded that these things are true. And, And what else did he give? He gave them a community, right? They were all together. Aside from appearing to Mary... Uh, every other instance of Jesus appearing, at least that I that I can recall off the top of my head, um, every single other instance, Jesus appears to two or more people, except for Mary. Uh, so Jesus is always appearing to us in the context of community. He's given us each other to help us in the midst of our fears and doubts. And then he's also given us today, Right? we remember, he's given us baptism right? As a sign that says, hey, you have been buried with Christ and you've been raised again to new life. That's what the waters of baptism symbolize. Uh, and he's given us a meal. He's given us the Lord's Supper, where at the Lord's Supper, we remember that Jesus' body was broken for us, that his blood was poured out for us. And we do that to, not just to remember, but we do that because the risen and ascended Jesus said, one day you're going to have this meal with me in paradise." Isn't that amazing, right? You have the story, and the story is not just a little throwaway story of like, oh, they they had a hard time believing. But in this story, Jesus comes in and says, "Hey, I know you're going to be scared. I know you're going to have questions. I got you. I'm going to care for you in that." Uh, and so, the resurrection is a message of trust and comfort for those who have fears and are doubting. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you uh, that you care for us enough uh, to give us a word of comfort uh, in the midst of our fear and a word of assurance in the midst of our doubts. Would you please, Lord, uh, take that word and apply it to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.